tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Baby, it's over. Honey, I thought you said love was forever. Sometimes forever changes. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, you have the honor of being with This Is Vinyl Tap. I'm your host. My name is Doug Cooper, and I'm joined tonight by our extremely humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Hello, Tapsters. That was Jonathan J.M. Rowe saying hello, Tapsters. Up next, we have PPT. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Power Pop Tony. Hello, Doug. I'm full of love tonight. Aren't okay. We well, we have, an, we have an album from 1967. So, huh, everyone's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, I did not pick this album. Tony. Yeah. You are the grandmaster of our fabulous webpage. Can you tell us a little bit about how we picked this album? Well, so we'd been uh, soliciting recommendations for people for a while um, and uh, collecting them and and ooing and aahing over them, but we finally decided to do something with them. And as we've been talking about over the last couple of episodes, we're uh, we're going to start interjecting every fourth episode with a listener's request. And we've had three three named listeners request this album. We've had a couple other people do it, too, who shall remain anonymous. Because they didn't they want anybody to know they listened to the show because they have reputations to protect but uh so john i i if i butchering your name i apologize up front but john hogue david nelms and andrew Hod, Hodgkin, hodkinson um all three of those guys requested that we do forever changes by the band love and uh we thought oh that sounds like a mighty fun album to dig into so that is our first listener choice okay so right. for our listeners at home who like to keep up with things uh, each one of us picks an album, mm-hmm. and then every every fourth album, you pick the album. That's right. We, yes. We're going to call this called You Pick the Album. I just made that up. That sounds so, wonderful. That's great. Yep. All right. So uh, these guys picked a very 
a highly regarded album. If you now, were, now, <laughs> I, that, some people some people gave it good reviews when it came out in 1967. It's on Elektra, and it was a brand new label at the time. This band fe- features a very apparently charismatic and uh, disturbed lead singer and and uh, and writer of the most of the songs, Arthur Lee, uh, who we'll talk about quite a bit. Uh, it was film, filmed, it was recorded at Sunset Sound Recorders in Hollywood, Hollywood California. California. So we're, uh, we're in the L.A. area during uh, the beginning or the, the end of the beginning of the height of that whole scene down there with Buffalo Springfield, the birds, all those cats down there. That, other, cats that other horrid band on Electra as well. <laughs> yeah, Tony's going to have trouble with that tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, that is The Doors. Yep. Um, I can't believe that the band name Doors did not remain unused for a very, very long time. Um, I, who said, yeah, that's cool? <laughs> doors. Doors are awesome. Well, it's. Be- I'm assuming it has something to do with opening the doors. I know. It's just like, oh, we're, so, yeah. we're so broad. So many of our... The doors in our mind are closed, yep. and our heart. Until we use acid and destroy ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I, I am very serious about the high regard with which this album is held. Uh, people mention it in the same breath as Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's, and I, I would label this the most highly regarded album that most people have never heard. If, if you had a ratio of ratings and hype over number of albums sold i think this band would have the highest number uh any of you two have a comment on that would you like to back me up and say amen man brother uh, you're on top yeah i'm not sure if that's true or not i it's funny because we we've been here before with a couple albums i think the one that stands out the most is odyssey and oracle an album that was re- recorded relatively around the same time that uh got zero attention when it was released more attention than that album did when it was released but uh but then it subsequently become uh you know yeah. an album that people talk about in hushed tones um so th- this album has a lot of similarities of things we talked about um that we i guess we'll get to at some point but that uh that's a big one i mean you know um yeah this this album did not chart well in the states um and it w- wasn't until later that it started making all these lists i didn't mention the fact that this is their third and final album with the original lineup yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this album did not chart well in the united states at all in fact it charted worse than the two yeah, albums their, that came it before. Was their wor- yeah, it was their worst uh, showing of the three albums with that lineup. Apparently, when someone told him to quit sounding, trying to sound like the Birds and Mick Jagger, uh, it made for a better album, but fewer sales. Fewer sales, yeah. So, all right, I've got a question for both of you, uh-huh. and I would like you to write this answer down so you can't cheat and change it later. And since you don't have a pen and paper, I would like you to pretend like you wrote it down so you can't cheat later. Okay. 
Okay, I'm going to ask this question. I'm not even going to tell you which one is going to answer first, just to stir it up. Okay. The album closest to this album in the whole world. If you had to tell someone oh, this Lord. album is the just call me Doug. If you had to tell someone this album is the closest album to love forever changes, what would that album be? Hmm. And our listeners at home, if you would like to play too, all you have to do is uh, tell someone what you think, and then uh, they can verify that later when we do an audit. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, I see a twinkle in your eye. It looks like you may have something in mind. Well, it's kind of funny that you asked that question, because one of the things that I was doing after I listened to this, I kind of did start asking myself, what is what does this album sound like? And it is kind of a quintessential 70s album Um you know, from the sixties, from the six, it's a, it's a pretty quintessential, I'd say late sixties album, summer of love album. The band that I keep thinking of is, um, a band that was actually started from the ashes of the Yardbirds, uh, Renaissance. I think their third album was one called uh, Ashes, Ashes Are Burning. And that, to me, is about as close to... As close to this album as you can think? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good one, and I don't know anything about that. So that's something for me to look up. Yep. All right. Now we go to our very perplexed uh, power pop Tony. Um, okay. So I don't want to sound like a one-note person here but i'm going to explain myself a little bit i don't i don't know of anything that sounds quite like this album i I was trying to figure out if i was going to pigeonhole it what i would call it and the best i could come up with is is garage folk that makes any sense uh sure because it's heavily it's a heavy acoustic album but the the they come from this kind of garage rock mentality and that shows from time to time on this i'm going to say the zombies odyssey and oracle again and i'll tell you why they're both sort of baroque rock albums um or baroque pop i guess you can say yeah they're both uh considered psychedelic even though they're not well this album more so than that one yeah, but barely but it's really not a psychedelic album but they're considered psychedelic mm-hmm. um and they're and they're both albums that sort of went beyond the expectations of when they were recorded and i think that's probably why they weren't really understood at the time they came out is because they have a little bit of a that's not to say, I think this album sounds, I agree with Jam, I think this album sounds, for people who say, oh, it's it sounds timeless, I think this album sounds like it came from the late 60s, Yeah. but there's something slightly odd about it that makes it sort of transcend that, if yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so I mean, it, 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 it's a quintessential 67, 1967 album. Uh, you, you summer just, of what? What was it? Love. Uh, I, I also want to say that... Um, there's a, there's a, and this makes it more compelling and a more interesting listen. There's a bit of, of sort of schizophrenia to this album. The, yes. the, the way Arthur Lee sings, and he sings all but two of the songs, I, 
if I didn't know he was the same guy, you could have told me it was four other guys singing. The other odd yeah. thing is they're they're maybe the most British sounding American, American band. They really, are. I've, you I've could ever have told heard. me you'd knock me over with a feather. Um, yeah, you? it's 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 really pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially certain songs. Uh, I you I, if you had played them for me out out of context and told me this was like a I don't know some moody blues outtake I probably would have yeah, believed yeah. it you know yeah um, uh, well I, there's some things uh, our listeners would be happy to know that uh, although me and uh, PPT <laughs> find ourselves on opposite sides of many issues uh, the zombies album is the album that I thought of too and it was also the baroque pop. Uh, I think this is a Baroque pop song. Uh, I, I mean, album. If you have to pin it down, yeah. yeah. I also would say that it is like a mistake was made in the production of this album, and different producers kept coming in who had been told they were making a different type of album, and yeah, they keep nudging the band into this area where huh. you go, what? What is this a flamingo album? It, it, it's really interesting because. Um, Normally, you would think as as sort, and I don't disparate is too strong a word, but as as uh, different as some of these songs sound, you would think it'd be a mess, and it's not. It works really, really yeah. well, and yeah. I don't understand that. <laughs> I, I I tell you what, a lot of these songs sound the same as each other, uh-huh. and uh, at the same time, they're sound. This is what's weird. They're sounding alike. And they're in vastly different genres, yeah. which yeah. is a weird combination. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the architecture of them are similar. That's know? right, and it's it's the modality that changes. But the yeah. the I, I listened to um, Johnny Eccles describing the production and and making of this album, and basically you have the songwriter is singing the tunes to the band. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. apparently he was an extremely limited guitarist. And that was the only instrument that he played, even though he's credited on these out al- this album with the guitar. Uh, I don't think that was uh, really true. You're talking about Arthur Lee. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Arthur Lee uh, was the main songwriter, and it sounds like he was just humming and he, yeah, he did that. He did that as well to the uh, orchestra arranger and right. conductor. Yeah. He would say, say it's just kind of like Lil Steven did I, on uh, yeah. uh, what what is it of uh, Tenth Avenue Freeze Out. Yeah. But anyway, the uh, Johnny Eccles says that they got this. Uh, F7 major chord form that is in all the songs going up and down the neck with that F7 uh, chord form, which he says is the reason that makes it sound cohesive, a lot alike. And he said that you could hear a song for the first time after hearing the other songs on the album and you'd feel like you've heard it before yeah that's interesting and i i found that to be very 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 true true. yeah i'm with you um and i'm so happy to uh know that there's also some kind of lilting deal at the end of each line that is not what you expect and it's 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 just i guess it's a uh arthur leeism well and the other thing about his I don't know if phrasing is the right term, but the way Arthur Lee sings the songs and the way the the, the stanzas are constructed, there's just so, something slightly off about them that yeah. feels it, it. It it's weird because I loved listening to this album when we were while we were doing it, uh, you know, doing the research for it or whatever. And I, um, but it just there were times when I f- I felt this weird uncomfortableness and I didn't it's know a what very that uncomfortable was. Album. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's it's not just the subject matter that's no, uncomfortable. It's, no, it's no, it's the way it's, that the, it's the performances, the, yeah. the resolve is not yeah. 
if it yeah. resolves, it resolves. I don't know if it's just like, like it broke off. Yeah. Not like it came to a proper ending. Everything seems suspended. Yeah. You know, like all this, he'll, when he's singing and he goes into the neck, like he'll sing one uh, line straight. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, that's it'll a, go to that's a, it, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, I just couldn't put my, put my finger on it, but yeah. It's, uh, well, this, um, this is a disturbed man. This is a disturbed album and it has disturbed words. Yeah. So I, I asked myself, why is it that I've had this, uh, record by one of most, one of the most, um, highly regarded albums. I've had it for some time. Why is it I listen to it so seldom? Yeah. And I, it's, it was finally, I go, Oh, because it makes you feel unhappy and and all yeah, tied up. I think that's something that's going to run through our discussion today yeah. is the fact that unlike most of the other hippie, uh, you know, cl- you know flower. T- I'll tell you what I think it is too. I think there's a significant difference between bands coming out of L.A. and bands coming out of San Francisco and yes. their worldview. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 this band in particular, it was it was mo- multiracial. Um, yeah. you, you know, I think their viewpoint on things <laughs> going on in the country and in particular LA in the late sixties really makes that, that there's a cynicism and a darkness going through this album that you yeah. don't get from things coming out yeah. of San Francisco or, or the other things across the pond, if you will. You know, it's, it's, it's not at all San Francisco. No, it's that I, yeah. I guess Buffalo Springfield had some darkness. Oh, yeah. She said, you're strange, but don't change, and I let her. And uh, the doors definitely. did. Definitely. And I've, I'll go ahead and say <laughs> this now. I hate the doors, but there's a lot about the doors that I can hear in this music. Yeah. Um, and and the, I and I don't think it's love copying the door. No. <laughs> No, no, no. I th- well, I think that's I think that's kind of apparent um, yeah. knowing the history when you dig into the history of this band that it's the other way around. I agree with you. I agree with you that there's a there's a commonality between the Doors and I like you hate the Doors. <laughs> well, I think but, we're all in agreement that um, we think the Doors suck. Yeah. You know, they have one of the things they have in common these the Doors and Love is they both are considered. The, the lyrics are considered to be poetry of the highest order, yeah. and people rave on and on about it. And for me, neither band no, deserves right. that. Yeah. And I, I can't tell you how many interviewers just went on and on about these lyrics, and then they'd give an example, and I, I, I just felt like saying, did you hear the example you just gave? <laughs> so I'm really on the outs with everybody on the lyrics yeah. on this album. Well, and that's how I feel about people talking about 
it, there's so many people that bend over backwards to say this doesn't sound like an album of the times, and I don't know how you can say I that. Can't. That sounds exactly. It sounds. This sounds like it came from ni- the late 1960s. Again, yeah. there's something that transcends that. Saying it sounds like the 19, 1967 isn't a bad thing, but there's no. a lot of people out there saying, "Oh, it's just it's timeless. It sounds like it sure as hell yeah. doesn't sound like the 80s. No, no. <laughs> or the 70s. No, no. Um, I mean, maybe the first little smidge of the 70s. Maybe, but maybe. everything. And some people say that that last song is the uh, proto uh, proto prog rock song. Well, that was one of the things uh, I was going to say. It's, it's, the, it does sound like this is bordering in some case, even though the, the songs are short. Some Except of the for course, that last one, seven yeah, minutes long. Yeah, Why do I keep one. saying the last one instead of the name of it? Um, it, it, um, it does sound like the, the architecture of the songs um, does kind of lend itself to that prog rock. Well, uh, it's also yeah. tossing a harpsichord here and there. Yeah, and it gives exactly. it that flavor as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I, there. I mean, there's this band had a lot of sort of proto stuff. I mean, their first two albums, uh, first one in particular, is sort of considered a proto punk album in yeah. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, th- yeah, this is one of those bands that not you know we talked about this with i think blondie and the police this is one of those bands that got very little attention outside of la in the states yeah. um but the uk loved them uh they evidently knew something we didn't um but as time has grown on they're extremely influential to a whole slew of people yeah. coming after them yeah. you set this you set the scene is <laughs> the song i was talking about and as your host i want to apologize for extremely uh unprofessional use of the term last song <laughs> that that last song you set this the scene is a it's almost seven minutes long which yeah. uh is nothing compared to their last album when they had a big long jam oh geez and um <laughs> i i don't think i uh i don't think i could handle a uh a love jam for much longer than well and we that get on this album. and that particular yeah. song um off of uh Oh. De Capo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and you're talking about that uh, a love jam. I mean, that song Revelation, It it's not just a jam, but there's not... I mean, it's sort of 20 minutes and nothing much going on. You know, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing to fill an album with, if you ask me. <laughs> it's probably real deep, though. Uh, okay, whatever. That's, you know, in this time, in this uh, in this age, long songs were really, really deep. All right. Well, uh, Tony. Yeah, Doug. How about we do a quick rundown on the history of this very interesting and troubled <laughs> band? Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and you guys, I'd love for you to pipe in while I'm doing this, but, uh, it kind of all started in Memphis, uh, where Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles were both born. In fact, they were both born in the same hospital, oddly enough. They said they didn't ever remember not knowing each other. Yeah, because they, they, their families knew each other. And, and, and even before their parents were born, their families knew each other. Yeah, exactly. Is... <laughs> I think uh, his grandmother, like uh, Arthur Lee's grandmother was a teacher, and I think Johnny Eccles' mom was maybe or oh. something like that. But anyway, when when the Lees moved to L.A. when Arthur's five or so, 
and Eccles family followed pretty close after that. Um, and when they get to LA, they're living in the same neighborhood and they reunite and it's like nothing, no, no time has passed. And uh, they both lived in Crenshaw, which was the South Central neighborhood, and they both went to Dorsey High School. Huh. And Eccles tells this great story about how he got interested in music. He was uh, he was in class, and somebody brought a guitar for show and tell and handed it to him while he went to the nurse, and he just fell in love with it after that. I guess just having it in his hands. Hey, wow, yeah. Okay, it's Inner Sanctum Records. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a new tour for you, thanks. It's a CCR. Deja vu. Oh, yeah. Did Thank you me. say CCR? Uh, I forgot the Y. <laughs> CSN and Y. CCR is something different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I want to apologize to uh, John Fogarty. CSN <laughs> Anyway, um, Johnny Eccles was in a high school band with, do you know, Doug? Mm, maybe, but I'm not thinking of it. Billy Preston. Oh, yeah, I did know that one. The really? Billy Preston connection. Yeah. The Billy Preston. The Billy Preston. They were in a high school band yeah. together. And why is that a connection? Because Billy Preston played on the Sam Cooke album, That's Night right. Beat, that yeah. we did, a, did an episode on. These are the, fantastic. Yeah, it's... He, um, so I guess that's the only other album he ever played on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the album we've talked about, yeah. that's where the yeah. connection is. But what's funny is that, so he's in the band with Johnny Eccles and Lee, who Arthur Lee, who's was a basketball player at the time. That was his main focus. I think he, at least he says it multiple times, he held some sort of record at Dorsey. Well, and uh, Johnny Eccles in an interview I heard talked about what a great jockey he was. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, we've not encountered that before. Yeah. That would be a non-connection, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but he, uh, but Arthur Lee sees the band at an assembly, and he sees all the girls screaming about him, and he's like, I think this might be for me. Goodbye, basketball. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he joins them initially playing bongos, and then Billy Preston leaves, you know, I think when he's probably around 16, because that's when he started getting yeah. gigs playing studio session stuff. And then Arthur Lee switches to organ at that time. The, the two of them, Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles, end up being, uh, they end up as part of a house band in 1963 at this place called the California Club in L.A. And that was one of these clubs that was on what was called the Chitlin Circuit at the time, which was this connection, this sort of cross-country connection of clubs that catered to black uh, artists and black audiences. What doesn't that get us connected to, uh, Ray? Uh, it does get us connected yeah, to Ray. it's on the Chitlin. Uh, very circuit. good. Um while they're while they're the house band for, well and the reason they got this gig was that Eccles' uncle-in-law managed the club so he they were i think arthur lee was of age he was a couple of years older than johnny Eccles, but Eccles was underage but he was able to play because his uncle-in-law uh managed the club mm-hmm. one night uh and that what you know as a house band they would back up people touring and one night the ojs are playing there and there's a guy sidles in who wants to audition to play guitar for the ojs that night and he doesn't get the spot, but he briefly becomes a member of the house band, and that person was. It's, should we move over, Rover? <laughs> Jimmy. I Hendrix. let Jimmy take Jimmy over. Hendrix. That's right. Yeah, Jimmy Hendrix. So, uh, and uh, occasionally, even though he wasn't in the band anymore, Billy Preston would come down. So Arthur Lee, Johnny Eccles, Jimmy Hendrix, Billy Preston, all on stage, backing these people, these national touring artists. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. How about Jam gets to try? Go. Uh, 
will talk about uh, the Wrecking Crew. There are members of the Wrecking Crew that have played on this album, among them Carol Kay and Hal Blaine. Uh, Man, they came up when? I'm, I promise you, uh, nobody has embodied in the uh, L, the uh, different the substances that made this album possible. <laughs> uh, who who did we talk about the Wrecking Crew with? Um, Harry Nilsson? With it, and I don't, I don't remember. I know we've talked about the Wrecking Crew a yeah. bunch of times, so uh-huh. we'll just leave that one open, and uh, our fans can call us. Uh, right? Know. It's <laughs> like when you have to tell the lead singer the words to the song. Remember, we saw B.W. Stevenson, and we had to shout the words yeah. to him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so now we find ourselves in that. Uh, anybody else have one? Uh, Tony, up. The birds. Yes. Yeah. Very connected to the birds. So uh, the birds are. Um, we did the. Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Now that wasn't the connection. It's just the band that was connected. But Arthur Lee saw the birds at the club at Club Zero's in Hollywood. Yeah, and it fundamentally changed the kind of music he wanted to play. Right. Yeah. Heavily so. influenced by the birds. And it's obvious there's bird stuff on this album. You know. So. Yeah. Um, and and your uh, car. <laughs> and uh, Brian McLean, who joins uh, Lee and Eccles. Uh, at some point, which we'll get to, he was the bird's road manager. A trap. Yeah. So. What about our uh, most downloaded yep. episode of all? Neil Young. Neil Young. He pops up. Uh, th- at this time, Neil Young is in a band called <laughs> Buffalo Springfield. All right. And uh, how does he? How does he integrate himself into this? He uh, does some of the string and horn ger- horn arrangements, doesn't he? On- that's argued about. Um, it is argued about. Uh, well, how he comes in is Bruce Botnick, who was the producer, wanted Neil Young to produce the album. And he agreed to initially, I believe. And then he decided he just wanted to go move on and do some solo stuff. Yeah, so I've, That's one of the stories I've heard. Um, Johnny Eccles said that Neil Young came walking in and they were all friends. They all hung out together and uh, they all shared the same passion for the same pastime. And... Um, they go, what is he doing here? Mm. Why, why, why is he? No. And he said, he says that Neil Young was just about broke and needed money to pay his rent. And uh, they said, can't you just give him some money and he won't have to produce something? <laughs> uh, he's credited with one of the songs on the record. He is. Uh, uh, the Daily, Daily Planet. Planet yeah. but he, as arranging it. I mean, that was the... Uh, well, who knows? There's so yeah. many stories about that. Well, uh, this this is a little bit similar to... The Commander Cody podcast, in that there's a lot of fog around some of these stories. I mean, there's a little, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more laid down in fact, but I know Arthur Lee in in particular like to embellish things. And uh, so it's, it's a little difficult to get to some of the exact truth on some of this stuff. So there's some disparage or, you know, there's some people who um, have different opinions of some of the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. That's right. And, and we, here at <laughs> This Is Final Tap, we embrace all opinions. I've got one more sort of uh, loose connection, if you will. What's that? Pink Floyd. Okay. Heard of them. Yeah. So... Uh, Barry Miles, who we've talked about and we talked about on the Pink Floyd episode, which we did wish you were here, was sort of there. He he was uh, he co-founded the International Times magazine and he's sort of their historian. He said that Sid Barrett stumbled on the riff for Interstellar Overdrive um, by trying to imitate the guitar part of My Little Red Book, the version of My Little Red Book by Love. 
That's a good one. Yep. I didn't hear that one. Yeah. What about um, Whiskey A Go Go? We've been there before, but I can't remember why. Uh, we've been to the Troubadour a few times, but yeah, I don't we've ever been to the uh, Whiskey Go Go. Whiskey A Go Go. I think the whiskey came up, but I don't recall. Here, this is like our 150th episode, Doug. You're, you're trying to go back. I think and... the uh, the connections are getting uh, vaguer. <laughs> We're starting to sound like the albums you were just talking about, where you can't get the history straight. That's right. Well, we'll just plow on ahead. And uh, T, you were giving us a quick yeah, rundown. I, I apologize. I jumped straight sure, into the uh, right. the history of it. But as I said, uh, around around sixty three or so, Lee and Eccles make their first recording. It's uh, just a repeat. It's called the Ninth Wave. It's an, they're an instrumental band. And, uh, and it's very, it sounds very similar to something. I'll see if you can see the resemblance. Well, that sounds like the groovy music on Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, it does. But a little, um, I guess, drummier. drummier. Let's just say they were they were a little Baker. bit influenced by Booker T and the MGs. Ah. Um, ah. Hence the L, the L A the Lags name as well, because MG stands for Memphis Group. They they're Los ah. Angeles Group. So, so there you go. That, um, yeah. So is that Arthur Lee on the organ or who? Was yeah. The, oh, oh. Yeah. Arthur Lee on the organ. Nice job. So yeah. So anyway. Uh, then and Arthur Lee was actually writing songs for other people. Um, in 1964, he wrote a song called "My Diary" for the R&B singer Rosalie Brooks. Lee says he wanted somebody who sounded like Curtis Mayfield, so he asked Hendrix to sit in. And this is considered maybe the first recording, the official recording that Jimi Hendrix is on. Is that right? Yeah, this song "My Diary." Keep your eyes on that guitar player. Yeah. So <laughs> he's going places. He is going places. So uh, the, what's funny about that is even though Arthur Lee's listed on the label as a writer, Rosalie Brooks used to say that he had nothing to do with it, that she and Hendrix wrote the song. Really? She also said they had an affair at one point, too, she and uh. Hendrix. Uh, and that she only asked Arthur Lee to join as a back backing uh singer <laughs> but uh regardless of all that you can kind of tell what he was doing before he saw the birds <laughs> and how the birds fundamentally changed the direction yeah. that he was going to go um but while while all this is going on uh johnny eccles ends up uh also having a kind of an interesting little side venture he backs little richard um oh. and to, and ends up touring with him while um, 
Little Richard's in the UK touring. They make a stop in Liverpool, and uh, the Beatles come by to sycophantically drool all over Little Richard. And uh, that's Johnny Eccles meets him. He's not very impressed. They're not really, but he's, that he puts up with point. them. Yeah, um, but Little patient. Little Richard's impressed enough to ask them to open for him in his residency in Hamburg. Eccles has to go back to L.A. because his grandmother died, so yeah. he didn't go to Hamburg. <clears throat> So he leaves and isn't a part of that thing. Were the Beatles comfortable with that scene? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, but upon his return to L.A., Eccles and Lee form this R&B band called The Grassroots. And uh, and this is around the same time that uh, Lee sees the birds and they and he and he kind of changes their uh, the way they're um, approaching their music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also around this time that, uh, Brian McLean joins the band and also kind of fundamentally changes the way the band is going to sound. Um, do, do we want to talk? We should probably talk a little bit about Brian McLean. Don't you think? Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he, he starts playing guitar around 1963. Uh, he gets a job at a, at a club called the band. Uh, the balladeer and he's a backup blues guitarist there uh through that he ends up becoming good friends with doug's favorite musician david crosby and uh and in 1965 he becomes the road manager for the birds and uh is so on their first california tour they end up going on a 30 night cross country tour after that after mr tambourine man kind of explodes and at the end of that he's so exhausted he says i can't go to the uk with you and um and he stays in la <laughs> There's an interesting little side thing he does, though. Do you know what it is, Doug? I do not. He ends up auditioning for the Monkees. Is that like, right? Well, yeah, uh, everybody, yeah. Stephen Stills auditioned for the Monkees as well. Yeah. Um, imagine what the world of, of Los Angeles music scene would have been like if all of these other people ended up in the Monkees. It would have been looking <laughs> completely. Um, I, I think it would have been one, uh, half a season before everything went to pieces. <laughs> but uh, he, it's a failed audition. So uh, he he meets Arthur Lee. Uh, the grassroots have this residency at this club called the Brave New World Club. Lee invites McLean to come down and see the band, partly because of his relationship with the birds. He thinks is going to help with the crowds. And sure enough, it does help with the crowds. And McLean says to Lee after he sees him play that he'd give his right arm to be in the group <laughs> to which Arthur Lee said, no, you're going to need that. And uh, <laughs> so he joins the band. And then as luck would have it, we talk about this several times on the podcast there's another band called the Grassroots out there. <laughs> well, and uh, the story is that um, they're they're sitting there. The band that will become Love is sitting there, and uh, they're they're approached by Lou Adler, who's uh, a pretty big deal yeah. in the LA scene, and he he starts talking to him about their future and what he can do for them and all of this stuff. And according to uh, Eccles, he he maybe is overserved, <laughs> and they got to get back on stage. So they leave, and he feels highly offended, and uh, he says he'll ruin them. They'll never work in the town, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he goes and works with this band called the Grassroots, and uh, they put out a record, and. Soon after that, the other grassroots discover they better change their name. They got 
They got birded. And I don't mean to hurry as long as I'm with you. We'll take it nice and easy and use my simple plan. You'll be my loving woman, I'll be your loving man. We'll take the most from living, have pleasure while we can. And sha-la-la, there goes the name. (laughs) And we end up with the name Love. Yeah, and there's two sort of conflicting stories about how that name came about. One of them is that McLean and Eccles were passing a billboard that advertised a restaurant called Love Brasseries, or however you say that, on Melrose Avenue. And evidently, Lee used to work there. And so they went to him and said, hey, what do you think about this name? And he decided to pick it. The alternative version of that is that the band name was based on one of the former members of the Grassroots, a gentleman by the name of Bobby Beausoleil, who just so happened to later on become a member of the Manson family. Hmm. And while he was in the Manson family, his name was Cupid, hence the name Love. Now, what's why I think that's probably not true is I think the uh, that all happened a little bit before right yeah so it's uh, and i don't know about you guys but when i think of the manson family i don't think love that doesn't come to mind <laughs> no. and uh, johnny ba- 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 say it. bobby bosley bosley i'm sorry ladies and gentlemen my french is horrible um he ended up being a uh, first degree murderer yeah he killed yeah. a guy named gary hinman and uh, he's ser- currently serving a life imprisonment or life in prison Anyway, if you want to play guitar for a living, don't murder people. <laughs> That's right. So, um, after, the, you know, the rest of the band, Love, was at the time a drummer by the name of Don Conca, who was then replaced by a person by the name of Albin Snoopy Fister, a bassist by the name of Johnny Fleckenstein, or Fleckenstein. He would later join the Standells in 1967. And he was replaced by Ken Forsey, and uh, who was the bassist for the post-wipeout lineup of the Safaris. Yep. Um, and that's the lineup that they go into the studio to record their title, their self-titled debut. Um, Doug, I think it's, I know you're hosting, but I'm going to ask you a question. I think it's an interesting, uh, you, you mentioned it briefly, an interesting thing about the signing to Electra. I didn't know if you wanted to. I'm happy to talk about that, or if you want to weigh in on it. Well, they got signed to Electra, Tony, and they were one of the first bands on that new label. They, they may have been the first. They were the first rock band. It was a folk band that had been around since the 50s, or folk label that yeah. been around since the 50s. And, and uh, they got that gig, and they wanted to help out a struggling band, also in L.A., not nearly as popular as they were at the time in the club scene, but they wanted to help out this band called The Doors, and they got them signed, Tony. And in the talk, the doors got a hit and took all the oxygen yeah. they needed for their for their publicity. Well, I think a couple of things uh, seem to be responsible for that. Arthur Lee swears the label just lost interest, which I don't think is necessarily true, and just poured more money into the doors. Mm. Um, I think another reason is even though they had a hit, uh, the doors were not as reluctant to tour as right. yeah. love was now there's several reasons uh arthur lee says the reason they didn't want to tour is he's like we hit, we were happy here we were huge here why the heck would i go to atlanta and play in a small club for 50 bucks you know yeah. which makes sense i get yeah. that 
But the other thing that maybe was in the back of their minds that the doors didn't have to worry about was that there were two black gentlemen in love. And there aren't any black gentlemen in doors, and we're talking in the doors, and we're talking about the '60s, and yeah. things weren't always as progressive as they should have been in the '60s. Hard to find a hotel in some parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. so I, you know, I think that all makes sense to me. At sure, least. sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what a shame. What, yeah. a, what a shame that the wrong band got the support. What a yeah. shame that that band got any support. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you're a Doors lover, please uh, send us an email and tell us how much you hate our guts and <laughs> why we should change our mind. Yeah. All right, Tony. So we're getting pretty close to album time, are we not? Well, we just I briefly want to talk about the. I think we need to talk about two albums that came before the debut, uh, which was released on Electra in March of '66. It had this Burt Backrack song on it called "My." Don't tell me what it's all about. Called "My Little Red Book." Um, and that's the book. That's the song I was talking about that Sid Barrett was uh, trying to imitate when he huh. when he worked on Interstellar Overdrive. And now is that the one that was on American Bandstand? That is the one. That was their first big single. Um, <laughs> that, it, it it sounds like it's going to be um, Phil Collins singing. Love don't come easy. <laughs> well, what I, I think listening to that is you can definitely hear that garage rock mentality mm-hmm. permeating yeah. through yeah. what they were doing. Uh, by all accounts, Mr. Bacharach was not a fan of that version of the song. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's hard to tell it, it's him. Yeah, it it's not tuneful enough for old Bert. They also, that, that album, their debut also, album also had a version of Hey Joe, which I think everybody and their brother did. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then they had some originals on there, like Sign DC, which was evidently about their former drummer who was a heroin addict. And then the song that I that I really like uh, called Can't Explain. And that fits nicely into that um, finding someone dead next to you genre that was popular at the time. Yeah, it's uh, and I should have mentioned that's not the Who song. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> it does have kind of some Who elements. I think they've heard the Who before. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's definitely, uh, I, I hear that song and I hear every band I really like after it sort of building mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. So, um but yeah, the uh, that album sold around 150,000 copies. It was number one in the LA area, but it was sort of it peaked it peaked at 57 in the US. Um, but like I said, the fact that they didn't tour had a bit of a a bit of a uh, an issue on them. Their second album, their second album, which was called De Capo, uh, which we mentioned, uh, has that extended jam on the second side. Um, they went into that recording uh feeling they needed a restart and so they kind of moved away from that that folky rock sound and um snoopy fister switched from drums to organ and harpsichord he does play drums on seven is seven and seven is yeah
All right, so yeah, and Paul Rothschild, Paulie Rothschild was the guy who produced this album. You guys know who that was? Uh, no. <laughs> well, he uh, he was supposed to produce her first album, but he was uh, in jail for marijuana possession at the time. He is able to produce this album because he's out, and he had just finished producing the Doors self-titled debut. Oh, <laughs> of course. So, by all accounts, and uh, according to Eccles, he wasn't real happy with this album because he was expecting another love debut, and they had decided to go a different direction, um, and he found it very uninteresting. The album did peak at at 80 in the U.S. Um, So, uh, this album was released the same month as The Moody Blues, Days of Future Past, Cream's Disraeli Gears, the Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles, um, After Bathing at Baxter's by Jefferson Airplane, ho- The Hollies Butterfly, and The Monkeys, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. Wow, all in the same week? Month. month. Did I say week? I meant no, 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 maybe meant, but regardless, still, that's an amazing yeah, month and, of music. But, <laughs> but if, you take out, if you take out the Moody Blues and Cream, uh, what you have is a bunch of flower power sort of love, you know, psychedelic yeah. albums. If you put in Cream and the Moody Blues, you've got all of them dealing with psychedelic imagery on their covers. Yeah. Um, but the, as we've talked briefly, what makes this album significantly different than those was its point of view and its sort of um, anti-Summer of Love stance on things. The most uh, of all the albums that come out this year, this is the one that should be by the band Love the Least. A band called Love should have been doing something, something that fits in better. These guys were the opposite of their name on yeah, this. Yeah. One thing about this this album was um, they, the rest of the band, besides Arthur Lee, were, were a little bit listless. They just weren't kind of into the vision that um, Arthur Lee had. The arrangements of the songs were a little bit more intricate, and so the band wasn't really into playing them. Um, so to kind of kickstart uh, the band, the the producer Botnick brought in members of the Wrecking Crew to just kind of uh, kickstart the band, or just he, he wanted uh, to show that, or, or make the rest of the band kind of jealous. So he was working with the the Wrecking Crew, and the rest of the band kind of saw what was going on and said, "Okay, okay, okay, we'll come in and we'll play. We'll we'll learn the the arrangements." And so the Wrecking Crew only plays on two of the. Uh, 11 tracks on this album but um yeah they were kind of responsible for uh getting the rest of the band back into the studio and there, there were some hurt feelings with yeah. uh brian mclean and uh um johnny uh eccles were yeah. they wanted more of their songs on to be included and in fact there, there was supposed to be a double album and the, the record company cut that back uh as most record companies should do on they most should. double albums. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, they ended up getting fewer songs than Arthur Lee, and uh, that upset them. But mm-hmm. the, the the wrecking crew coming in, I can't imagine anything more intimidating than sitting on the sidelines when the wrecking crew comes in and says, excuse me, boys, let this take over for you. I, I would... Uh, We'll handle this. Yeah, well, I, I think and, I would throw my instrument down on the ground and and hide. The uh, and and by all accounts, uh, what what Bruce Botnick says is they're all 
all the rest of the band is sitting on the couch like watching this transpire in front of them so it's like they're they're realizing that this is slipping away from them uh yeah this album was going to get made regardless of whether they played it or not it would have sounded a little different the two songs they did record on the wrecking crew recorded on the band came back and overdubbed some stuff to make them sound a little bit more love lovely if you want to say yeah echo said that the the it didn't sound like love at all uh, once the Wrecking Crew got in there, which yeah. I can believe that because they have some very unusual ways of playing. Well, Jack Holzman, just going back to Bruce Botnick, said that um, this album wouldn't have been made without him, that he was the single most important person in the studio after Arthur Lee yeah. and um, McLean because he got them he got them going again. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty high praise if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and McLean did get a, at least one song on this album, right? The first one. Two. two. He's got two songs yeah, on it. And, uh, Old Man and... Uh, yeah. Alone Again or, yep, which or is probably his. the most well-known song from this album. And by well-known, you mean one that someone's heard before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you guys know the story. Uh, someone, while they were recording this, someone fairly famous came in and sat down and watched them perform a little bit. Benny Goodman. Benny Goodman? Benny Goodman was recording in the studio down the hall, I guess. Really? And they brought him in, and he sat in, and he was impressed, mainly because Arthur Lee had some little jazz flourishes in the way he's doing, and he yeah. sat there, and old Benny Goodman dug what he heard. <laughs> really? Yeah. That'd be That's cool. interesting. Yeah. That would have been cool if they got him on here somewhere. You know what? And as much as they're doing everything under the sun, why not? Uh, we have another connection that I dropped. I apologize. Oh, Tony, you're horrible tonight. Some of the some of the guitar solos on this album were recorded in Leon Russell, Russell's home studio. Oh, is that right? I didn't no, know that no, one. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah. Cool. And how are we connected to Leon? Uh, well, a co- all Leon. A couple uh, of things. Tom Petty was recorded uh, with Denny Cordell at uh, um, Leon Russell's studio in Tulsa. And then, um, well, Jackson Brown. And uh, Dwayne Allman, your Texas album guy. Oh, Willis, Willis Allen, Allen Ramsey. Willis Allen Ramsey. I was having a brain fart there. Willis yeah. Allen Ramsey was uh, that whole album was recorded at Leon Russell Studio. Well, that's good though because I got a chance to say some other things. I'm not even sure are true. Um, so the album finally gets going. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally going to be called "The Third Coming of Love," but yeah. that didn't go. So they came forever changes and. Yep. I think we can all be thankful there was a change. Uh, and Forever Changes, when I hear that, I think that's a great name. It's very profound. It means something extremely deep. And then you find out where it comes from, and all that goes out the window. Um, apparently, uh, Arthur Lee heard someone talking about uh, a, a boy and a girl breaking up, and yep. they're breaking up, and the girl goes, I thought you said this was forever. And the boy says, well, baby, forever changes. That's right. And he Which, thought, there you go. <laughs> and so that's, uh, it doesn't fit the, it doesn't fit the uh, album at all. It's too cynical. It's not happy and uh, filled with love like the album. <laughs> uh, one, one more just bit of interesting, kind of, if, if anyone finds this interesting, David Angel, who's the guy who's the orchestral arranger on this, He's he's basically conducting a 12-piece orchestra, which is also different from what they'd done before. Um, that was Bruce Botnick's also his thing. He's like, you know, a couple of a couple of uh, these songs could use some strings and some brass. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so he calls his mom, who was the music copyist for Frank Sinatra, Nat Cole, Nat King Cole, and asked uh, if she knew any undiscovered arrangers who might be a good fit for love. And after playing her a couple of songs, she recommended this guy. And as we mentioned earlier, when Botnick hooked him up with Albert Lee, Albert Lee sang the songs to him so he could figure out the arrangements on that. And then uh, just real quick, going back to the brass, the Tijuana brass was huge at this point. So yeah. that's another reason they're interspersed as well. we'll get and to they us. were another uh, Hollywood headquartered outfit. Yep. Yeah. And so that, that sort of a melding of genres there. And we'll get to specific songs that they influence as well when we get when we dive into the album. One thing that Tony just said I need to mention. There's some things from the 60s that aren't on this album. There's no tape loops. Hmm. There's no weird groovy effects and the number one thing that we don't find is there's no mellotron where's the mellotron there's a harpsichord (laughs) not the same thing so they go out and get real strings yeah (laughs) so that's that's one of the things that really makes this thing stand out (laughs) and as we said uh the first tune is uh the one most people have heard before alone again or All right, there's something without any words at all. So if you're a love fan prior to this album coming out and you hear that, you're probably scratching your head a little bit. <laughs> what did we just hear? And when um, is where's Clint Eastwood? <laughs> well, and this is the so this is the song that really kind of that Tijuana brass thing, but what they wanted to do, since there's the flamenco kind of thing yeah, going through it, yeah. they wanted it to be a little bit more Spanish influence than Mexican influence. This is, of course, written by Brian McLean, and he sings lead on it. And uh, we probably need to play another uh, snatch with some singing on it. But uh, I I did want everybody to hear that very strange, out of place. I mean, we talked about how this is a, it's it's so not in its time and all. No, this is way in its time. And I was going to play a game with these two guys, and uh, I guess we can play it now. I'm going to say a, a song, and you tell me AM or FM. Okay. <laughs> it's not unusual to be loved by you. AM. All right, 100% AM. Okay. Uh, uh, how about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? FM. FM. Okay. So, uh, Tijuana Brass? AM. Okay. Now, the reason I'm doing this very painful exercise is because this album sounds like AM, AM and FM. FM. It does. It has <laughs> it trappings does. from both of it those. Does. And that's yeah. one of the, when I got this album, the, one of the first things I noticed, and I'm, I'm, that, that combination gets more confusing. Like if I say, um, Three Dog Night. Oh, yeah. I lean a little AM on that one. But, yeah. it, but one of the things that a lot of listeners don't know is uh, this is at a time when you had basically a uh, open radio. 
with the DJ would sit down and play whatever he yeah, wanted if yeah. it was popular. And we didn't have all the formats divided and everything up yet. And this, when I say this album doesn't fit the time, this album is like the whole time all swirled up. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really yeah. is. This is the song that I think most people see as their crowning achievement. Yeah. And it is not Arthur Lee's song. Right. <laughs> Which means that if he were listening right now, Which, he would be very upset. And I can't believe it's not an Arthur Lee song. The, uh, the lyrics are just, it, it sounds exactly like something. Well, it's They're got, a little more straightforward, aren't they? Yeah, but they do have that, they do have that kind of dig at the counterculture. You know, it's yeah. this, what's that line? I, I heard a funny thing. Somebody said to me, you know that I could be in love with almost everyone. I think that people are the greatest fun and I will be alone tonight, my dear. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. this, oh, this free love. I love everyone. But guess what? Yeah. The reality is. Right. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, you're right. It's a little more straightforward. Um, yeah. But it still has that cynicism, kind of right. steeped in that cynicism. Right. It the flamenco. The reason it sounds like the the flamenco thing is going through it is that um, Brian McLean's mother was a flamenco dancer. So this is kind of a uh, nod to her. Well, this it's it's even more interesting than just that. <laughs> According to um, Eccles, they went out and rented banjos because they wanted banjos at the opening. Hmm. Huh. So, in all of their arrogance, these guitar players thought, heck, we'll just sit down with these banjos and figure out how to do it and put in a banjo opening. Well, they couldn't figure out how to play a banjo as fast <laughs> as they thought. That's funny. So, he's sitting there playing this flamingo stuff, and um, the producer goes, well, why don't we do that? And one thing leads to another and we end up with this giant production that yeah. sounds like uh, <laughs> nothing else. It's really interesting the way it happens. Um, it's, uh, it's like I don't know with sketches at Spain coming out. How 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 much earlier than this was sketches in about Spain? Eight years, I think. Anyway, yeah. maybe that was still in the air. Yeah. And of course, Tijuana Brass was. Yeah. But I find it very interesting. I I think it's really fantastic the way it's this big sort of production and then right at the end of the Alone and Night with you, it's just the acoustic. Guitar, yeah. It's just so, yeah, great. so great. Well, if you can listen to the song and not see credits rolling, <laughs> I mean, it's like what what is that? That seven seventy millimeter. Yeah. I yeah. feel like you just watched a seven millimeter uh, film and it's yeah. the desert and there's yeah. this guy riding off way down there yeah. and. Yeah. Oh, it's a great song. Great way to open the album. Panavision. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. I would say it's a it's a great sort of introduction to what your what lies ahead, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's really not. <laughs> no. Um, if 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 you heard this, you would get kind of excited about more of the same, and yeah, yeah. that's exactly what you don't get. Nope. Right. Right. And it's uh, you know it's in one of my favorite movies. This is where I think I've. Heard even discovered the band was from that movie Rushmore uh, by Wes Anderson. I think it was and Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson wrote it, but it's a great movie, but the way that the music is used in that film is great. Well, that's the one thing Wes Anderson does really well. Yeah, he does do that the quite music. well. Okay. We got another song up right after that one. A house is not a motel.
Alright guys, somebody tell me what you call that kind of music. I, I think this is a perfect example of garage folk. I think you're exactly <laughs> right. It, but it, you know what, it, it, it reminds me of, it'd be a perfect uh, music for one of those scenes in a movie where people are go-go dancing and they've got those, you know, the, the cameras strobing in. And, and someone's losing consciousness yeah, or something. Somebody, yeah, and then and you got the gelatin projections on. Oh, the no, thing. someone put acid in my drink. The, and thing, now... the, thing, the thing that you didn't play on that clip, and it's understandable because it's, it's later on the song, was there's two things that, to me, just really jump out and make this seem really garagey. That's this sort of birdsy electric guitar comes in yeah, at one point. Yeah. I don't. I, I'm guessing it's a twelve string. It's got to be. I can, um, yeah. And then Arthur Lee starts growling. He's like, when he gets to that, you can call my name, and he yeah. gets that garage rock growl. Yeah, uh, I love it so much. Um, it's a good thing. And, and, and I'm I'm just waiting for someone to tell me how this is so atypical of the period. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very typical. I, of the <laughs> and it's interesting too the the use, and I don't know if they did a mono mix of this. I'm assuming they did. Yeah. But the the use of stereo in this, when this song starts off, you got that really really busy drumming in the left channel, yeah. and then this sort of nice acoustic guitar in the yeah. in the right, and you're not it doesn't it doesn't set you up for what's coming. Yeah. Well, one of the, um, yeah one of the things about stereo at this time was they didn't have you couldn't pan you know, halfway or, you know, three quarters of the way, like an instrument was either going to be all in the, in, in the front or it was going to be in one channel or the other. You couldn't really mix the, uh, that's why a lot of albums at this time were double tracked or a lot of the guitar parts were double tracked. This is one of my favorite songs on this album. I, lo I love the song yeah. and it's got this line in it that I think is fantastic because it's sort of prescient and it's the news of today will be the movies for tomorrow. <laughs> It's again cynical, yeah. but it's spot on because that's exactly what happened, right? right. I mean, it's right. it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, Just ask what's his face, so uh, Oliver Stone, oh, Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver Stone. Well, and then the way this song fades out is yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, it's like it's like controlled chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's two leads going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, and this is this is weird. Uh, this is uh, Eccles playing guitar, and he's. He puts two leads in, but he can't hear the other um, lead while he's recording the second. So that's why it sounds that way? Uh-huh. Oh, and it's, he's got... Uh, it's like a happy accident. Arthur Lee puts his hands up. He's in the booth where he can hear it. Puts his hands up when the guitar is loud and puts his hands down oh, when the guitar Lord. is soft. Wow. So it reminded me of uh, Clapton laying down all those tracks for... Uh, keep on growing yeah but without the ability to hear what you're doing while you're putting down the new tracks it's yeah. very interesting very interesting but anyway that's um there's a lot of guitar on that mm -hmm. uh, i had trouble with uh figuring out guitar um it's very staccato yeah mm -hmm. and yeah. i usually associate that with limited ability uh 
And that's probably because that's how my guitar playing is. Well, <laughs> the, thing, the thing we didn't talk about was that Jack Holzman got, sat Arthur Lee down and told him that he thought the band should soften their sound a little bit. Now, I know this song isn't the right, maybe not the right time to talk about that, but he really wanted them to kind of go back to that sort of folky rock thing they were doing. That may be that may have influenced kind of the way they're playing the electric guitars. On well, wait, I, I, uh, I, it, it's some of it sounds like too many of the same note in a row and, and a little staccato, uh, yeah. but I don't know. I, it may be exactly what he was going for. I don't know. Um, well, he was, you can tell also that they, he's not using a pedal or anything like that. He's pushing that amp is, is about as high as it would go. Yep. And, so. But, uh, I'm not going to give him any lessons. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is a new word for me. Uh, it reminds me of notwithstanding. Uh, this this is, and more again, uh, one word, and maybe it's a name, Tony. You see, and more again, then you will know, and more again, for you can see. How is that the same guy who sang on the last song? <laughs> I know, his voice. He does have a chameleon-like voice. It's like Johnny Mathis. Yeah, it does. We're kind of back in the Burt Bacharach territory, yeah, too. Um, so, according... You may know this already. That's why you said it, Doug. Accordingly, it's the name of the song is a nod to this woman that both Lee and McLean dated named Andrula Morano. Oh. Um, or Moreno, I guess, not Morano. <laughs> um yeah which uh, yeah well it's it's a it's a pretty song um it's it, it's, it's very hippie this is about as hippie as it gets on the album but this is one of the two songs the wrecking crew are on yeah it is and it's got the the fruit the wrecking crew it's carol kane don randy billy strange and hal blaine are yeah. from the wrecking crew on this yeah. when uh hal blaine by the way had the most number one hits of anyone in the universe yeah he played on the most that's right that's right um the, uh, the drummer botnik says you can tell carol kane because she played with a pick and the bass sounds different than it does on other songs it, it sounds um, the, the best the bass is played on the album you, well uh i'm trying to think of, of the two songs they play on i don't think they left one of their distinctive licks that yeah one of their hit maker licks like they did on uh, something stupid or you know, sunny and shears tune yeah uh, Oh yeah, the beat goes on. Yeah, they they usually have a. But anyway, this is a nice song. Yeah, yeah it's pretty. It's pretty. It's not. It's not. It a has great that weird song, ending that like yeah. all those uh, the, the 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 it comes to a strange stop like all the other songs do. Yeah, and it has bum bum bum, <laughs> which I wouldn't want to sing. I'd feel silly saying bum bum. bum. <laughs> it fits the song. Though. It does fit the song. It does. Uh, and it's again a very of its time song. I think, yeah that that seems to be the recurring theme is uh, yeah. of all the albums that aren't of its time. This is the most number of its last. Time. Yeah, I, and I, we don't want to keep beating that drum, but it is funny how many people go out of their way to discount that. I wish Stoner Steve silly. would call and say it was not of its time, so we could argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> all right, the Daily Planet.
Spider-Man fans. That is my favorite song on the album. Oh, ah, dink. I was going to say that. I that said it was your favorite song. It's no, I was going to say it was your favorite song because <laughs> it sounds like something the monkeys could do. Well, um, I'll tell you what it sounds like to me. It sounds like, sounds like it fell off Piper's at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, I yeah, could hear yeah, Sid, yeah. Bar- yeah. Sid Barrett-era Pink Floyd doing yeah. this. It's a perfect little 60s pop tune. It is. It's, it's also the second song the Wrecking Crew is on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... It's snappy the way nothing else is on it's the It's so catchy. Yeah. It's yeah. so catchy. It it really um it's an outlier on this record. It, yeah. It's also, I think, and you guys might disagree with me, I think it's the most um unabashedly psychedelic sounding song on the album too. I yeah, think I can so. see it. I love the chorus. I love the bass. It's a great it. song it and is, I and I, I wish I had said this is Tony's favorite song before I started it because I knew it was Sorry. going to be yeah, unpredictable. Well, I mean it's it sounds like early who too. Yeah, yeah it's it, so it's such it a great song. Um yeah, and it, it's kind of interesting lyrically. I guess it's uh, the what is the 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 line in it about the sun um oh uh yeah it's just essentially kind of going through your daily routine type right. of thing you know yeah um anyway well this is the one that uh, neil young supposedly arranged supposedly yeah. i you know that again as doug said there's there's some speculation about if he did anything or not well, it, not not to Eccles. Eccles said they paid him and he went away yeah <laughs> um i don't know i never know who to believe it's, a, it's a shame poetically it'd be better if he had something to do with the next song but yeah. well in case you're wondering why ppt said that the next song is called old man now it seems things are not so strange i can see more clearly suddenly i found my way i know the old man would laugh Okay, again, it sounds like someone else is singing. Yeah, he's in a falsetto this time. So it's McLean, well, it's McLean singing this because he wrote it. Ah. But uh, it sounds very like, it sounds one of the most love-sounding songs with yeah. the weird endings. He, and, uh, he yeah. said that he, I mean, the funny thing about this song is he'd been performing it. I mean, it, this has been, been part of their live set since 66. Hmm. Um, he said later that he didn't like how straightforward the lyrics were he thought it was a little too you know whatever precious uh, as you said um i i if you had played this for this is one of the songs that just i mean I, it sounds like he's purposely trying to sing with a british accent it's bizarre yeah, it is it's really strange yeah do you think if he if he sang this on the staircase at uh the frat house uh, his somebody would come bust his guitar over his head. <laughs> Probably. Probably so. Um, Again, it, yeah, it is kind of precious, but I, you know, the <laughs> string arrangements are interesting. Uh, the chord progression is bizarre. The delivery is, is bizarre. So it kind of keeps you in this little... I, I don't dislike this song. It, it sounded... The first time I heard it, and uh, unlike you guys, um, I didn't know this album for that long until we started doing the podcast and you guys were talking about it at one point. I <clears> dug it up. It, it I, forgive me because it's not entirely true, but it, it always the song pops up. It for some reason reminds me of Harry Nielsen, and I don't know why. I, uh, I, I don't have any trouble seeing that. I can see that uh, with this. I mean, again, it, the recording. There's no scatting in it, yeah, but no uh, scatting in it. But uh, there is uh, the recording techniques. I think are similar. 
for one thing, just the way that it actually sounds. Well, then that, ear, that early Harry Nielsen is what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. And, and let's talk about that weird sound. Um, there's five minors in this song, all in the verse. So huh. that is a weird combo. That is a weird combo. Yeah. You got a, a E minor, um, E minor, uh, F sharp minor, B minor, C minor. C minor. And then you have a couple of sustained <laughs> uh, suspended chords. So I've. Yeah. It looks like something uh, maybe a guitar player that's fooling around would come up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can remember when I first heard this album. This All the songs sounded strange when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. This is the only one that still retains that Strangers. strange, the same exact strangeness that the whole album it's, had for yeah, me it's when a, I started. It's a weird... It, I get it. It's it's a lot like like a lot of these songs, but maybe even more so. It's kind of unsettling in a weird way. Yeah, they are. It's, it doesn't it resolve. Yeah. yeah, nothing resolves. There's no clear cut. It's hard to just sit around and hum them. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard to to except just, except for that last song we heard. Yeah. Well, could Donnie and Marie cover this on their uh, variety show? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> they could reeling in the ears. They could do this one. They can't do. Yeah. Okay. I believe in magic Why? Because it is so quick I don't need power when I'm hypnotized Look in my eyes This may be the strangest song on the album. Uh, this song's called Red Telephone. Yeah, um... It, and it also seems a little bit to me like they're they're getting into repetitive territory here. That they that kind of odd uh, delivery of the lines and the lines just kind of dropping off and when during a weird chord change, uh, like and then I don't the words just are strange to me. The way that sitting on a hillside. Well, we get the darkest lyrics that. I, um, so what do you think the song's about? I have a I have a theory. Okay, what do you think, Doug? Uh, I think it's stream of consciousness, but I I think they're watching uh, Vietnam and friends come. I, I I don't know if it's as I don't think it's I, I for some reason this all, when I listen to the song it seems to me to be sort of the flip side, if you will, of for what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield. I think it's about the Sunset Strip riots and. Uh, Oh, you know, he is, they are on the hillside. They're up there in, uh, they're Bello just Josie's. outside of, uh, well, it's not Bella. That was a rumor, oh. but they're in a castle that's yeah. up there in the Hollywood Hills. And there is truth that he was um, watching uh, the city. So I, I I would go along with what you're saying. I mean, it, I'm, I'm sure Vietnam played into it, but it just seems, it seems a little bit more I don't know. I, it is stream of consciousness, but for some reason that always evoked that same sort of thing that for what it's worth was about, which was these, these curfew riots in LA where the, a bunch of teens who were told they shouldn't be hanging out and loitering mm-hmm. down at sunset strip. And the police got in this big sort of melee and, you know, violence ensued. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this seemed like. This to is me. back before Los Angeles solved its crime problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, this is darker than that song, that Buffalo Springfield song, though. Oh um, yeah, it is. 
So. There's, uh, he's he's talking about uh, wanting to be on the other side with the people who have died, and mm-hmm. we didn't mention. I don't think we mentioned that he thought he was going to die as soon as this album was Yeah, over. that that also permeates the darkness, or not permeates the darkness, is the reason for the darkness mm-hmm. of this album, is that he did feel that way. Weird this thing. This is to, like a letter uh, yeah. from his grave. Yeah. But I, 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 I disagree slightly with, with JM about the vocal delivery, because I, I get what you're saying about it sounding like similar territory, but I, I don't think this the way he sings this sounds like really like anything else. And the way Doug talked about old man making him feel uneasy, this song makes me feel really, really yeah, uneasy. It does, it does, yeah, for me too. It, it makes me, it's unsettling the way that this song, the, nothing like Doug's been saying, it doesn't resolve anywhere. That It's just, again, you get that kind of suspended feeling. I bet there's no guy and girl on earth for whom this is their song. <laughs> <laughs> At least he's not taking shots at bluebirds. Yeah. What is happening and how have you been? Gotta go, but I'll see you again. And oh, the music is so loud. And then I fade into the... All right, that's what happens when we flip this baby over, Tony. We've got a short titled song, Doug. What's this song called? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the people would be the times or between Clark and Hilldale. So um, this is sort of semi-autobiographical. I have no idea what... Well, Whiskey A Go-Go was on Sunset Between Clark and Hilldale. Oh. oh. I, I, was, I knew there was something about L.A. streets, but I didn't know. I, I have a question for our lyricist lover, Doug. Mm-hmm. Do you find it uh, clever the way they do this, where the stanza ends and on you a have pause to wait and you have the... to wait for it to clear up on the beginning of the next stanza, so, yeah. or do you find that annoying? Um, what, what Tony's saying is the last word of one line is the first word of the next line right except you have to wait till and the, yeah there's this pause where you're in ex, you're expecting that word to come and it and doesn't you might get a couple of bop bop yeah and then it comes and then it comes at the yeah, first word yeah. of the next stanza yeah um that's uh not it doesn't serve a purpose i i find it uh, uh, irritating and I, I don't mean it's really irritating. I just feel like if this is something you would see in a performance once, you'd go, oh. <laughs> yeah. But if it's something you're going to listen to over and over again, you start going, okay, okay, yeah, it's, I get it's it. A, you say it's a slightly gimmicky. It is gimmicky. It's yeah, very it's gimmicky. gimmicky. Yeah. And gimmicks uh, can be fun once, yeah. yeah. but it's hard for a gimmick to... Uh, to stay. I, I I also think this song reminds me of uh, House is Not a Motel. It seems like yeah. maybe we're bumping into that again. Yeah. That's a better song than this one. Yeah, this yeah it that, is. And it's also got those game show horns in it. You know, you know what you said? <laughs> yeah, that, the, it, the punctuating of the song. The other odd thing uh, about Another this, thing that's very typical of the time yeah, period yeah, that yeah. we pretend like this isn't typical of the time the, period. The, the other thing that's interesting about this song is it's a fairly like upbeat little song, but it's, I think it's all acoustic guitars. And yeah, I don't think I there's, think right. there may be a, 
electric solo, but uh, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's, but the only, yeah. I mean, the, the punctuation, like the, the, the energy comes from the acoustic guitars. And then those, as Jam said, those game show horns kicking in. And um, this, this is another one with that, that, uh, uh, F major seven form going over and over again. Well, and it's, it's another one where Arthur Lee doesn't sound like he does on any other song. It's weird. It's very weird. Oh yeah, it's true. Anyway, um, there's some energy in that song, but uh, yeah. it's it's not it's not side one of I mean it's not number track one of side uh, two that that's not what I would have put there yeah, uh, yeah probably right. Daily Planet yeah. um yeah but anyway our next song um, should have shown up in the uh, connections the next song is live live and let live. Oh, the snot has caked against my pants It has turned into crystal There's a bluebird sitting on a branch I guess I'll take my pistol I've got it in my hand Because he's on my... Um, can you tell me why it belongs in the connections? Oh, the snot has caked against oh, my pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say because it's it's one of two songs where the vocals sound very moody bluesy to me. Oh, oh really? Yeah. 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 The, it, it's not quite John Lodge, Justin Hayward. It's someplace in between, but I, it sounds sounds like the moody blues to me when they're singing. Hmm. Well, um, I, this is only the second song I know that has the word snot in it. Yeah, and well, it's not very it never is. Um, yeah, it's not a very good struggling use songwriters out there. Uh, Stay away. Avoid from snot. Them. Yes, let's, we don't need any mucus in our tunes. Hummingbird tongue. What do the hum little girls wearing? Pigtails in the morning. In the morning. La da 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 da. Okay, groovies. <laughs> so this song, this is thematically, this song does not sound like the others. No, it doesn't. You know what? It, it you were, we were mentioning that they were trying to sound British earlier. This to me is, you've heard songs like this come out of Southern California before, where they are trying to make it sound like it's British. But you, you know, I still can't get away. Maybe I've just seen too many movies from that time where I'm just seeing the sunset on the beach uh, and a woman and a man walking around not necessarily touching or anything but just looking at each other and wind blowing in her hair and he's wearing sunglasses um like again peter fonda and you know like brett eckland or someone a major seven c major seven um, f major seven the, all over I mean, again that's that's the groovy chords there. I, the, but this is this is as close as they get to embracing that summer of love esteem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I, I actually think while it's not a great song, it's kind of a nice deep breath of. It's a of, break. It's a break from the heaviness of everything else, um, which I think is needed. Um, you know, I mean, in comparison, uh, musically, I think the other songs are significantly more interesting. But it is a nice sort of 
uh, like a sigh in the middle of all this stuff. Yeah. Um, they need Joni Mitchell to come in and say, okay, <laughs> y'all go sit down over there. I'm going to rewrite your lyrics, and I'm going to sing this thing. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Field. She does weird chords. She does all that weird stuff. Yeah. And, but, man, it works. Well, <laughs> it does, of course, yeah. she's an enormous talent that yeah. we haven't talked about yet, mm-hmm. um, obviously, because Tony's a uh, misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> in the summer up next we've got bummer in the summer well i remember when you used to look so good and i did everything that i possibly could for you we used to ride around all over town but they're putting you down for being around with me but you can go ahead if you want to cause i Uh, did Bob Dylan just stumble into the studio? <laughs> I was actually thinking them. Uh, I'll it tell you. It sounds like Lord. I, 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 it's weird to have that the vocals with that guitar in the background that sound yeah. like it's from a different song. Yeah. It, uh, you know what this, this, the phrasing of, I mean, I think it's obviously influenced by Dylan, the, the way the lyrics are kind of yeah. shooting at you like that. But it, the way he delivers them, the way Arthur Lee sings a song, it sounds like, Hendrix singing Dylan to me. Like I could hear Hen- Jimi Hendrix do this song and oh, do yeah, it justice, singing the yeah, song and yeah. doing it justice. Yeah. Especially when you get to that part in the chorus uh, where he kind of souls it up a little bit. Um, this is the most American sounding song on the album, I think, by far. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't think about that, but that guitar no, nobody British ever did anything like that that I know of. And, and then, yeah, and it's also got, this is this kind of the other song with that, it's got a bit of a birdsy electric guitar going mm-hmm. through it. Oh, um, yeah, I love, and that, that galloping guitar solo in it, yeah. just, I love that thing. It, I, I would say we're kind of back in the garage folk territory, if if for, if that's the term. I like this song a lot. Um, it's a dumb title, but whatever. It is a dumb title. But it rhymes. Did y'all notice it rhymed? I was. I, I, I see this and I think of, because I knew this song before this one, I think of Bungle in the Jungle by Jethro Tull. It's another <laughs> yeah. stupid title. but yeah. Um, I, well, and then uh, for the most part, this is one of the most straightforward chord progressions yeah. that yeah. we have. Yeah. yeah, I think it's my second favorite song on the album. It's a good really? one. Yeah. It's a good one. I like it a lot. Well... Um, <clears throat> you don't like it? I don't dislike it. Um, just getting machine gunned with lyrics that um don't make me go ah is not well. Fun. I I think um I'm just I find his vocal delivery compelling and uh, like I said I it's it's the one song that has a little bit of soul infused mm-hmm. in it which I like. It's, it's, it's it seems to me closer to what his voice is for. I think so. Yeah. Although you say that and his voice sounds almost great on all these songs so yeah um, yeah it's um he does have he's like a chameleon we talked about people like that yeah, before it's, it's amazing. they have a bunch of voices yeah. uh yeah and i would i would guess that this is a very popular song with the people that like this album mm-hmm. well, i think so i think you're right well up next we're at our final tune on this album and this tune takes up six minutes and 49 minutes. 49 seconds. Uh, no, six minutes and 49 minutes. And it yep. is. No, this, this song is You Set the Scene. 
Walk down your doorsteps, you'll take some more steps. What did you take them for? There's a private in my boat, and he was visiting stuff of medals on his coat. There's a chicken in my nest, and she won't play until I've given her my best. At her request, she asked for nothing. All right, so. We're back I, in that moody blues vocals territory. Yeah, this is. Um, I like this song. Oh, what's not to uh, like? It's a good song. It's uh, it's a lot of lyrics. Um, you know, I'm, it's three songs. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, go go into it a little bit, Tony. Well, I don't know much about it other than these are three separate songs that Lee wrote, and the bassist uh, Forsey put them like assembled them together and made them one. Hmm. And I would think that the drummer would request a break after this um this he is working hard on this number it's a it's a mini love epic yeah i i like this song a whole lot is it the right song to end with perfect song i think so yeah perfect song to end with yeah yeah it's it's uh it's almost like lesson learned from their last album when they did that extended blues jam that just droned on and on and that they said oh well we can make a little longer song but it'll be interesting this time yeah and it is um and what you said about the changes, uh, I love that. I, I do too. I love yeah. songs that blend together uh, to make one song out of uh, out of a number of them. Yeah. You know, the Beatles did that, of course, all the mm-hmm. time with uh, John and Paul putting two tunes together. Yep, those two prolific guys that could say, "Oh, sure, you can use this fantastic <laughs> melody for half of a song. I'll, I'll go get five others." So. Uh, yeah, it works really, really well. Um, and I, I am interested. I know, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again after what Jam said about the whole prog thing, because I hadn't really put that that yeah, together well, listening to it. another one that kind of borders on the, on the prog thing, I think. Well, that's, that's not just JM saying that. I read that uh, a number right, of places. That's funny. I never saw that, but I'm definitely... And that's, I, isn't a switching from uh, one tune to another inside a tune pretty proggy? It can be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you'd call a day in the life proggy. It does it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, the, uh, the, there's, there's, uh, this is accessible enough, I think, to be a hit uh, if it had been trimmed down and, and polished up to be a hit. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't, but it sure seems like it could have been. Yeah, it could have been one of those songs that found new life on if it had been released a couple of years later when, you know, album-oriented rock was really the, the way to go and right. play these long songs. Um, although, you know, again, Day, Days of Future Past was released at the same time, and, and Nights in White Satin isn't a short song. No, uh, but it is, um, I, I would say that song's more accessible than anything on here. Yeah, I get, well, except for maybe um, the, the Daily Planet, but... Yeah. Um, which should have been a hit as well. Uh, I no, I, this song is is really great. It's interesting. It's uh, like we said. The per, I don't want to just repeat myself. The perfect way to end it. Um, yeah. How how is uh, how are the Moody Blues the opposite of love? Touring. Oh <laughs> yeah, and their and their their vocals are definitely not cynical. Yeah. No no no. I don't have a cynical. I, I think if wrong. somebody came in with a cynical song, the others would say. Oh, what's wrong with what's you today? Yeah. What's what are you feeling bad? Do you have a bad cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs>
Sorry yeah. to our listeners in the UK for that. Yeah. yeah. Bit of a digression. We'll work on that. Um, if, if you speak British, please um, send us a tape so we can practice. Yep. I, I like the bass line on this a lot. It's got that really neat kind of suspended guitar that uh, they're in on the on the verses and it's got that cello i'm a i'm a sucker for a cello so the way that they use the cello on this is is really cool um so yeah it's it's a nice way to end the album and it's a it's just a nice song in general like you said i think it should have been a hit well it's a good album it's a good album and uh i think the only reason that i uh, don't consider it one of my best or favorites is i just don't want to feel uneasy and depressed which is a weird thing about me yeah uh tony how'd this all end up uh well i know that uh <laughs> brian mcclain got a job offer for a, a solo album right after this came out and went and told uh arthur and arthur arthur lee said congratulations gave him a big hug and said you're fired and yeah, that the, was pretty much the end of this band the band yeah any any sort of iterations of this band um prior to the early 2000s were well when arthur lee was out and not in prison were uh arthur lee and a bunch of session guys yeah and and uh <laughs> eccles had something to say about that he said that it really wouldn't work because arthur lee would go in there and start telling all these session guys how to play their parts yeah, yeah. and he said that uh, before when they were a band, he would let them figure it out themselves. Yeah. But he said, you get this non-musician going in there and telling professional musicians how to play their parts. Yeah. And uh, it didn't, it didn't work. Fly, yeah. Well, and Eccles went into rehab shortly after this album was released. Um, but when he gets out, he's he starts playing session stuff, too. And he plays yeah. with Glenn Campbell. He plays with Miles Davis. He has a pretty decent uh, yeah. little session uh, career. Um and then when uh, when Lee does get out of jail, um, and just to briefly state, he went in for the the California three strikes and you're you're out. And um, two of the strikes were misdemeanors, and right. he should not have been in. Right. Uh, I he, don't understand how that happens. I don't either. But uh, when he gets out, he embraces this album and starts touring it uh, again. And he and Eccles actually uh, get together again and the early 2000s and start playing it by that time mclean and forcey had died um what's really kind of cool is in you know what happens in, in the uk in 2002 doug uh no i wasn't there <laughs> the british house of commons oh yeah uh recognizes love uh, officially recognizes love. I'm going to read the declaration. It says that this house paid tribute to the legendary Arthur Lee, also known as Arthur Lee, frontman and inspiration of love, the world's greatest rock band and creators of Forever Changes, the greatest album of all time. Jeez. Notes the following his release from jail. He is currently touring Europe and urges honorable members to consider the potential benefit to their constituents if they were to lighten up and tune into one of his forthcoming British gigs. <laughs> <laughs> now, so did the Beatles come out and endorse somebody? that they didn't like right before this proclamation i don't know I, it's that is the most bizarre yeah, thing bizarre. i've ever heard well the greatest rock band <laughs> this well as we said this band uh was huge in the uk and uh i don't remember did we mention the the readers poll where they this album was listed number one i know we well, talked we, about we, it, we did uh we we're gonna have a contest and we're asking our listeners if they can answer this question this is our trivia question for a first trivia section which 
publication listed this album as the best album ever made by their reader's poll. Their reader's reader's poll poll picked this the best one ever. If you can answer that question, some of you right now are dialing away. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't have a phone number, but send that to our beautiful website. and uh, Tappingvinyl.com. That's right. Um, Yeah, Brian McLean kind of had a second life as a... uh, contemporary christian artist oh i forgot about that yep. that's right yeah. he, and he uh, did session work and but he just started his songs started becoming more popular uh among he found out that he was actually getting money for writing christian songs and he wasn't getting money for I, and he I want was to able say, to uh, stop yeah. using drugs while he did that yeah I, I want to say that his conversion uh, was done by the same person that helped Dylan do the same. That's right. They went to the same church. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, well, um, it's fine album. Ed, it's a very fine album. We want to thank our listeners for throwing that our way. And we do. I hope, hopefully, we did it justice. Yeah. Um, Please let us know how we did. Well, and uh, that's going to be hard for the next next group of listeners to uh, throw something at us that that nice so but don't be shy you can do it (laughs) well you know something wonderful happens at the end of the show uh, other than we finally shut up is uh, (laughs) we we give these a personal rating that is how much i like it and we also give it a critical rating where we pretend like we're critics and we pretend like someone would actually care what our critical opinion is and uh, we give two ratings and we try to Keep a wall of separation between our feelings and our cold-hearted brain. So since uh, nobody picked this album except for someone who's not here, I can go wherever I want to. You can. So I'm going to go to our powerfully humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Okay, so I'm going to give my critics rating first. Um, I remember the first time i listened to this album i guess it was about 10 years ago maybe a little longer than that and i just remember thinking you know what's the big deal what i don't understand what the big deal is about this album and it just the lyrics seemed precious to me the whole album just seemed a little cockamamie it it just i couldn't really see getting to the vision of what arthur lee was doing but gradually you know every now and then i would put pull this album out and give it another shot and it it started again it started to grow on me you know like a lot of albums that are critically rated it it takes a few listens to start you know figuring out what makes this the album interesting and good and it is a very interesting album i got to give it that and i listened to it quite a bit for this uh preparing for this podcast and um I, again, I, as a critic, I began to see, okay, I see what he's, what he's going for here. Um, so anyway, I, with all that, I'm going to say four or five as a critic. I, I do think that it is worthy of the, the praise that it's, it's received. Uh, my personal rating, I think I'm going to give it a three eight. I'm, I'm sure that I'll listen to this album again, but I don't think it's kind of what Doug, you were saying, uh, it's just doesn't really put you in a, in a good mood. Um, it's more of, it, it doesn't really hit me on an emotional level. It does kind of hit me on a, a, a curious level. I'm, I'm, I am kind of curious how the songs 
or you know were written what the chord progressions are and so it, that that's a good sign to me but yeah the lyrics and the delivery sometimes just leave me really flat and um it seems a little bit self-conscious to me and that's always kind of a i, I tend to try to stay away from albums that i think are, are self-conscious so three eight personal four five critic thank you jonathan jm Rowe. Mm-hmm. And I bet everybody knows who's next. Doug? No, it's going to be PPT. Okay, well... Um, Way to launch in there with him. I'm going to go get the wrecking crew to come in and rate it since you have you were so listless on sorry. that intro. I'm sorry. Hey, how there about that? Go, there we go, there we go. Just threaten the wrecking crew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want the wrecking crew to come in and get my ratings. Uh, I agree with Jam. I think this is a four or five. Um, I... We we beat the dead horse about this being an album of its time, but I do think there's something to it that sets it above that. It, it sounds, it's 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 weird to me. It's firmly in 1967, yet firmly not in 1967. Yeah. I'm fascinated by Arthur Lee's vocals on this album and how he can sound so different from song to song. It, it's fascinating to me. I think the orchestration on it, uh, f- one of the few times it didn't annoy the hell out of me. Um, it fits the songs really well. I like the horns on the vast majority of the songs. I think there's a couple of songs that are a little too precious. There's a couple of songs that sound a little dated, but overall, critically, I think, I think they knocked this one out of the park. And I, I don't, like you, Doug, I don't, well, you didn't say this, but I'm assuming you feel this way, and maybe you do too, JM. I don't understand the um, the greatest album of all time thing. I So I'm going to slide into my my personal review with that. I was re- So unlike you guys, I wasn't real familiar with this album until maybe about three months ago. When I, when we were sort of talking about maybe doing it and then we pulled the, pulled the plug and or not pulled the plug, pulled the trigger and did it. Um, we didn't pull the plug. Pulled the trigger. <laughs> um, I was really expecting, I wanted something like the first time I heard Odyssey and Oracle or first time I heard Village Green Preservation Society, or even the first time I heard, I never loved a man the way I love you. Yeah. All three of those albums were albums that, well, the first two I didn't know about. And when I discovered them, I was like, where the hell have these been my whole life? The Aretha Franklin album was an epiphany to me. It changed, fundamentally changed the way I thought about her as an artist. I wanted this to be another one of those because of all the stuff I'd read about it. It just didn't happen. And that disappointed me. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think it's a fine album. I like listening to it. I, for one, am not opposed to listening to stuff that puts me in a weird kind of funk. I'm a Pink Floyd fan. I'm a Smiths fan. Uh, when we did Transformer, Doug and I had a different opinion about that album. I actually really liked it, even though the subject matter is not something that I find necessarily pleasant. So I'm gonna give my I'm gonna give it a four or five as well on my personal. I think um, uh. It, it's 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 an album worthy of listening to. I just don't think it deserves that the highest accolades in terms of the greatest album ever. But I can see why somebody might feel that way. Thank you, T. PPT. Um, now I'm going to ask myself. Uh, this Self? is what we're all looking forward to. Um, there, there's uh, some issues here. Um, I wonder if this album was extremely popular uh, if it would receive the same kind of praise. That's 
Yeah. That's a really good question. Good question. Uh, sometimes it's fun to go, oh, yes, I like this. Uh, just me and a few very sophisticated insiders are aware of this album. So there may be some of that here. Um, I'm going to disqualify myself from giving a uh, critic's review that anyone needs to take particularly seriously, but um, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a four, seven. Uh, most of that is because it's extremely original. Uh, it is outside the banks. Um, I'm, I'm going to dock it heavily for the lyrics, which I think are n- not good. Uh, I don't understand that part. hope somebody can tell me, Oh, you're so naive. You didn't understand the third level of this or that. But um, uh, the the man sings well. The band performs well. And this is a cerebral album. I'm, I'm going to say what J.M. said. I'm not moved by this album. Uh, it's I don't. Nothing gets inside me and causes an emotion other than just discomfort. Uh, so that's missing for me. So my my personal rating uh, is is going to be a a, a four. Um, I do want to hear this record again, but not for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, most of my interest in this uh, record is with my brain and trying to figure out what these guys are doing with these strange chord progressions, and also trying. To, it, I feel a little bit like I did with XTC, where I'm trying to say, okay. Let's, let's start with a fresh slate and find out what all of these people are raving about. And um, I can see some of it, but I, I don't, see, I'm like Tony, the greatest top 10 albums of uh, top, is it in the top? No, I, I could throw so many uh, records out that I think are better. And I don't even know if it, if I would put it in the top 10 of the albums that came out of LA at that time. Yeah. yeah. It's you know definitely what? better than anything the doors ever did, I'll but, give you that, yeah. but that's the same as saying it's better than listening to uh, baby's cry. Um, I'd rather listen to baby's cry than the doors. Well, you're right. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is called the best, best album ever recorded in LA by a lot of people. So um, I, I really, really hope that we get some, emails helping us understand why we should push this all the way up to a a five and what's wrong with us. But that's the honest, uh, you don't get to just hear what the, a a regurgitation, what critics think here. Uh, You get the honest answers from us. And um, speaking of that, I'm going to shut up. We have a recommendation. T. Uh, Yeah. You know, we, again, we do this time from time to time. Um, we don't always recommend albums on this podcast and thinking about something just because I think the three, the three of us would agree that the story of this band is pretty fascinating. Um, almost parallel with the, with the album is just kind of all the history around them and what they were, what they were, you know, a, a part of, um, you know, becoming a band and everything. There is a documentary on this band called love story that is really great. I think it was released, uh, maybe in the early two mid two thousands or so, maybe a little bit later than that. We'll put a link to it on the website. Like we do with every recommendation. Um, so I would, uh, I'll, like I said, we'll put it on the website and re- recommend love story. Good, good name for a documentary about this band. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you there, Tony. That's a good recommendation, and I'll be sure and, and uh, look that up on my streaming platforms. Um, and that is our look at Forever Changes by Love. You can let us know what you think about uh, our review of the album and the album itself on our website, tappingvinyl.com. And do yourself a favor. If you have not gone up there and explored the site, uh, you're, you're missing out. There is a lot of uh, good information up there. There are some rare videos, rare photos. Uh, and you'll learn more about the bands and, and uh, links to information about bands. Um, so you'll learn more about the, the bands and the albums uh, by going up to our website up there. Plus, all our recommendations are up there as well. You can also reach us uh, via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And we also have a Facebook group page. Next week... We'll be looking at another important album released in the 60s, Serialistic Pillow by the Jefferson Airplane. When the truth is found to be Doug Cooper, our co-host Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, to get the chicken to lay in your nest, give her your best.